Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's virtual book club. I'm Marlena Doubt, Professor of African Diaspora Studies and Associate Director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies at the University of Virginia. It is my great pleasure to be serving as your host for this evening's event. I myself was a fellow at the center um, from 2016 to 2017. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to come back virtually uh, to work with the center and their ongoing effort to share the work of outstanding humanists with broader audiences. Um, tonight's conversation is the third in the center's current series of virtual gatherings, exploring how the humanities may help us ease the bitter strife and rancor that increasingly marks our public discourse. Our guest this evening is John McGowan. John is the John W. and Anna H. Haynes Distinguished Professor of English Emeritus at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was a founding member of UNC's program in cultural studies, and he was also the first director of UNC's graduate schools, Royster Society of Fellows, and served for eight years as the director of UNC's Institute for the Arts and Humanities. John's work sits at the intersection of philosophy, political theory, and literary studies, examining how writers respond to the social conditions in which they live and how they imagine alternative social arrangements. John has authored an impressive six books on literary and political theory, including Pragmatist Politics, Making the Case for Liberal Democracy, Democracy's Children, Intellectuals and the Rise of Cultural Politics, and American Liberalism, an Interpretation for Our Time. He is also the co-editor of the second edition of the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism and has published articles in academic journals spanning a wide range of disciplines. As a fellow at the National Humanities Center from 2017 to 2018, John worked to build on some of the ideas from his previous writing, specifically on how comedy may provide resources to help instill the civic virtues that are needed for a liberal democracy to succeed. He's kindly agreed to talk with us this evening about his work. So please join me in welcoming Professor John McGowan. Thank you so much, Marlena. And thank you to the National Humanities Center for this invitation to speak with you this evening. I'm looking very for forward to the conversation we'll be able to have. So, and I hope that many of you had a chance to see the wonderful talk last week by Laura Edwards, who has certainly set a high mark for, my, for me to try to meet this evening, and because my work has real overlaps with hers. Hers was a much more historical look at the development of the ideals of liberal democracy in American history, whereas my work is more in what gets called normative political theory. So thinking about the norms that underwrite our commitments to liberal democracy, and as my book subtitled, Making the Case for Liberal Democracy, what I'm going to try to do tonight is give some ideas about what are the commitments and basic features of liberal democracy. And the book is called Pragmatist Politics because I draw my inspiration from a group of American writers who are usually thought of as pragmatist philosophers. In particular, John Dewey, who lived from 1859 to 1952, almost a full century, and is certainly one of the most foremost proponents of and theorists of democracy in American history. Dewey's method in philosophy was what he called reconstructive, 
And what he wanted to do was to take the ideas and concepts from traditional philosophical thought and see how they could be reconstructed, reimagined, rethought in relation to contemporary problems. And in my own work, I aspire to do the same thing. So my book, which was published in 2012, was already responding to what, what seems even more obvious today, the fact that liberal democracy is in crisis. There seems to be a waning allegiance to liberal democracy as a political form, a suspicion that it can't do for us what we need done in our polity or want done in our polity. And I want to say that a double thing, one that I think we've lost a sense of what liberal democracy is about, but also then to think about this question of our allegiance to it as well. So what I'm going to do in about 30 minutes is give you four particular features of liberal democracy that Dewey highlighted in his work. And then I am going to pivot at the end to comedy. And the interest in comedy is to think about a literary genre, a way of telling stories that gets at more of the kind of emotional allegiance we might have to the forms of living together, the forms of sociality that liberal democracy calls for. So to begin with, the notion of conflict, which is the center of these book talks, conflict and resolution. Liberal democracy, as I understand it, and as Dewey understood it, is a response to the fact of intractable pluralism. We live in a world with other people who are going to have different beliefs, different commitments, different values from us. And there is no way we're ever going to reach a kumbaya moment of total consensus. Now these differences cut across all kinds of lines. They're religious differences. There's ethnic differences, racial differences, class differences, cultural differences. These differences are not going to go away. So Gandhi, in a quote that I always love to give to my students, said that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is learning how to cope with conflict. And so on the first level, on a very pragmatic level, using that word in the way that we use it in normal conversation, Dewey said that democracy is simply a mechanism for the resolution of conflicts in a way that doesn't involve violence. So the miracle of democracy is that you take a vote and the side that loses the vote still accepts because they see it as a legitimate procedure and because they have a stake in an ongoing polity, in an ongoing social set of relationships, the people who lose the vote, even if they violently disagree with the decision that the majority comes to, they accept that decision and move on. So democracy is a mechanism in that way and the taking of votes to resolve conflicts. And in respect to that, democracy involves then a kind of baseline civility. So Keith Bybee, who has recently written a book on civility, defines civility as the baseline of decent behavior, the bare minimum of good manners. If civility is meant to be the zero point of appropriate behavior, then incivility undermines the rudiments of social order and all is lost. What civility indicates is our acceptance of the other person's right to be in this space with us. And the fact that that person is not going to leave. There's not an ability to eliminate or push out or exile the person who's in that public space with you as an equal participant in these democratic processes. The alternatives are secession, civil war, insurrection, and unwillingness to go with the decision that the democratic majority has made. We've seen that fairly recently, you might've noticed. Um, there's two things further I wanna say about this. One is that it depends on swing voters. If you have a polity in which there is a permanent minority and a permanent majority, if one group, whether it be religious, ethnic, class, wins all the elections, wins all the debates, wins all the votes, then the minority has no reason to stay within the governance structures of democracy. For this reason, I think of democracy as fundamentally rhetorical. 
because what democracy is about is when you lose the vote, you have a chance to go back out into public and make your case to the public in the attempt to sway the majority to your side in subsequent elections. In the same kind of way, of course, it's always been understood that the majority will hold those in power, their representatives of government, accountable for their behavior. So democracy is also a check on tyrannical abuses. So it's an absolute disaster for democracy. If that kind of accountability is lost because people vote according to their tribal allegiances, not in response to the actual things that people in government are doing. So obviously we can think about that too in our current context. Now Dewey to move to point number two, Dewey thought there was a more positive side to the rhetorical emphasis that I've been talking about. John Stuart Mill famously said that democracy is government by discussion. What Dewey focused on was before you take a vote, there is a period of deliberation, a period of debate. Now it's important, right, for people to accept the consequences and the outcomes of a, of a debate and its vote that they feel included in the process. So they feel like they were in the room where it happened. They were there and listened to and were able to make their arguments even if they eventually lost the vote. But Dewey also believed fervently that deliberation led to better outcomes. That deliberation was a method by which, by getting the viewpoints of different people, by calling on their expertise, but also their different positions within the social order, you came out with outcomes that represented what he called social intelligence. I certainly hope that all of you have had the experience of being part of a committee or another group that was working on a common problem and recognized that at the end of the process, you would come up with something much better than you would ever have come up with on your own. That the input of the different voices actually led to a better result. Now, on the other hand, we've all been part of arguments where we know we said things we didn't believe, we got entrenched, we were so committed to winning the argument that we didn't listen to the good reasons and good ideas being given to us by other participants in the argument. So again, there's always that danger that someone will get entrenched by a certain kind of commitment to winning that will undermine this kind of movement towards intelligence. Now I'm gonna take a slight detour before I get to the third thing that Dewey had to say about democracy by talking about liberalism. So it's liberal democracy. There are other forms of democracy, illiberal democracy, but liberal democracy, in some sense, liberalism exists in a tension with democracy. And that tension is represented by a very pithy statement, never put rights to a vote. So liberalism from its onset in the 17th century was always about limiting the power of any particular place where power might accumulate within a polity. So constitution was one way to do that. So the constitutional monarchy was a way of limiting the absolute power of the monarch by binding the monarch to a constitutional order, a set of rules and procedures the monarch had to follow. In a, in a dem democracy, a constitution then is a way of limiting the power of the government, the government that represents the majority by saying, here are zones of non-interference. And famously, of course, that begins with religion, the notion that the government has no right to interfere in your choice of which religion to follow, but also, of course, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and the various other rights that get installed in the American Bill of Rights and in the French Statement of the Rights of Man. So at the end of the, of the 18th century. So those are usually thought of as negative rights and they're the origin of liberalism. But as liberalism evolves past the 18th century, two other sets of rights become important. The first one are rights of equal political participation. So ensuring that everyone has the right to vote, everyone has the right to participate in the various political decision-making processes that identify democracy. And that, as we know in American history, is a long history of struggle 
to extend the franchise and the right to vote. And it's a struggle that still goes on today, as we also know. But the third thing that comes at the beginning of the 20th century, and is where a lot of our political fights currently center, our political conflicts, is what gets called social rights. There begins to be this idea that there are certain kinds of things that people need to have to lead fully flourishing lives. Dewey talked about this using the term effective freedom. So he said, the key value of liberalism is its promise to provide freedom to citizens. But in fact, you cannot be free if you don't have the resources necessary to act on that freedom. Those resources are material resources, so access to clean water, access to food and shelter, access to good health care, but also things like education and things like the Food and Drug Administration. So you begin to have the fact that the government has to do things positively. So if the negative rights were about what the government can't do, what it should refrain from doing, the positive social rights that begin to come in in the 20th century, develop a notion of the things the government should be, should be doing, including things it should regulate as well as things it should actually provide like clean water, electricity, education, possibly healthcare. And as you know, again, these are things that are deeply conflicted within our culture right, right to today. Now to move back to the last piece of democracy for Dewey. Dewey, in fact, interestingly enough, was not particularly interested in democracy as a form of government. He was much more interested in democracy as a form of society. He was really taking his cue here from Tocqueville's famous Democracy in America. And Tocqueville thought the genius of American society was the Americans' proclivity for what Tocqueville called voluntary associations. So what Tocqueville saw in America was that American citizens, because of this new kind of regime of democratic equality, were, had this can-do attitude where they were self-starting, forming associations with other people to get things done. They didn't turn to the government, rather they looked to themselves and their fellow citizens joining together to cooperatively achieve things they wanted to achieve. You can see this all over American life. Think about little leagues, think about Rotary Clubs, think about Alcoholics Anonymous, the Sierra Club, the National Rifle Association, various charitable organizations, the Ford Foundation, theater companies, museums, not to mention churches and all the kinds of things the churches do. So for Dewey, this kind of active participation in communal life with your fellow citizens was a source of joy and meaning and purpose in individual lives. So this goes far beyond civility that baseline of accepting the fact that other people live in this world with you to the achievement of common purposes through these formations of voluntary organizations. And this is what political philosophers call civil society, where civil society is precisely what names the activities of people in public. So not with family, not with friends, not with intimates, but with relative strangers, with fellow citizens, more than fellow family members or friends in cooperative communal activities. So what Dewey wanted to promote in his work was this democratic spirit. And he thought both in terms of involvement in deliberation processes and involvement in these kinds of associations, he thought democracy was educative, that the participation in these kinds of activities were precisely what educated citizens into the democratic spirit. And it led to them having kind of joy or at least appreciation for the, the fact of pluralism, for the fact that other people were different with them, from them, had different ideas, different values, different things they wanted to accomplish. So it's cultivating that sense of pluralism as a benefit as an enriching of the world that Dewey thought was crucial to maintaining an allegiance to and even a patriotism about liberal democracy as the form of government. 
So that's sort of, you might say, the abstract ideas. And now what I, when I turn to comedy, what I'm interested in comedy is saying, comedy gives us, in the stories that it tells, exemplars, models, thought experiments about the difficulties, but also the joys of living together with other people, other people who, in a sense, you must live with. So I begin from a very, very simple definition of comedy. Comedy are stories that have happy endings. And the happy endings are simply that the world at the beginning of the story is a world that is thwarting in certain kinds of ways the desires of the characters. And by the end of the story, the world has been renewed or revitalized in such a way that the characters' desires are satisfied. The classic comic story involves a young couple who are in love with one another, facing various obstacles, very often parental opposition, but very often because they come from inappropriate, uh, they're an inappropriate match because of racial, religious, ethnic reasons, class reasons. They are people who should not be in love with one another. And in fact, their union at the end of the story is a way of saying that those kind of artificial distinctions, those kinds of ways of segregation between different people within the society has been overcome in the marriage. But also in comedy, very traditionally, the feast and the dance are models for a larger kind of social harmony, a larger kind of social celebration of being together in public with people. Um, that figures forth this idea that we can find ways of living with one another in peace. And not only in peace, but it can be a joyful celebration of our being together in the world. Now, when you look at comedy, um, I wanna begin with Dante's divine comedy. So within the Western tradition, Christianity, as Dante shows us, is basically a comic story. And it's a comic story that's based on what I call redemptive violence. So at the center of the Christian story is an act of sacrifice. It's an act of sacrifice, of course, that leads to communal, to that communal feast, to communion. And that's what's reenacted in the central ritual of Christian religion. But it does require the death. We need to be washed in the blood of the lamb it requires the death of the sacrificial victim. And also it seems to require in most versions of Christianity, a distinction between the reprobate and the saved. The divine comedy is not the divine comedy without that visit to hell. Dante seems to take a lot of pleasure in seeing how the wicked are punished. And certainly for lots and lots of people, the section of the divine comedy that's devoted to hell is the more exciting and interesting part of the whole epic poem. So we have this pattern of redemptive violence. It is reenacted in various non-Christian stories, probably most recognizably in Dickens. So almost all of the Dickens novels, except interestingly enough, his first one, but in his later novels, Dickens almost always has to sacrifice a villain. In fact, the death toll rises significantly in the later novels, as his vision gets darker in some sense. Um, because, and the young couple wins through to their wedding at the end of the novel, but it's, there's also the need to punish the wicked. And as I say, also these sacrificial deaths, these violences that enable the happy ending. So I've been telling people for several years now, asking them to send me examples. And I ask you to give me some in the question and answer if you have them. I'm, I'm like Diogenes looking for an honest man. I'm out there looking for non-sacrificial plots. So I'm trying thinking of what I'm calling secular comedy as opposed to divine comedy as plots that do not require sacrifice in order to achieve the happy ending. So in one way we could say these would be plots of redemptive non-violence. And I find examples in Shakespeare and Jane Austen um, so we do have examples in the literature, but I'm also interested in the way in which redemptive nonviolence is also the strategy that's adopted by Martin Luther King and by Gandhi. And now we're back to this notion of democracy as rhetorical. 
because clearly in both Gandhi and Martin Luther King, the nonviolence is rhetorical. It is staged in public deliberately to catalyze a process of conversion. So what the goal is quite explicitly in both Gandhi and Martin Luther King's writings, the goal is to convert the polity to a particular vision, um, a vision about the injustice of how they've been treating, treating those they've been excluded and moving of course, as King hopes for what he calls the beloved community. So King does imagine as his kind of ideal utopia, a resolution of conflict in the moment of beloved community. And he sees nonviolence in a very, as I say, kind of muted or refigured Christian narrative. He sees nonviolence as redemptive. What I've become particularly interested in recently is the idea of non-redemptive nonviolence. So a different kind of comedy where the comedy says, we're not going to redeem our basic condition of plurality. We're not going to achieve a kumbaya moment. We're not going to get beloved community. Rather, we're going to have to scrape along within the human condition of plurality, of pluralism. We're going to need to scrape along and find out ways to avoid secession, avoid civil war through a kind of modus vivendi operating ways of getting along with one another despite the annoyances and frictions of living together. I've come, as you might imagine recently, think this is particularly important in COVID when we're all stuck with each other in our houses and really have to figure out ways of, of negotiating the daily rubs and slings and arrows of, uh, of living in close quarters with people we cannot escape. Um, this is another way of saying that almost all the examples of non-redemptive non-violence don't end with the wedding. They actually begin with the wedding because what they're really talking about is marriage, where marriage is that ongoing negotiation. You never reach this moment of total resolution where it's all over and fixed and done with happily ever after. Rather marriage is about every single day making it work against all the stresses that suggests, well, you know, maybe we're heading for divorce, not for being together till the end of time. Examples in the literary world are Trollope and James Joyce's Ulysses. But in fact, what I've really come to think about a lot lately and uh, spend too many hours on Netflix watching are situation comedies. And what I love about situation comedies, and you may have seen that the, uh, New York Times had an article about this yesterday, calling it nice TV. Um, so examples are Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, Everybody Hates Chris, Modern Family, The Office, Community. I mean, there are scads of them, right? But think about situation comedies um, and what they tend to be about, they tend to be situated in the family or in the workplace. So they are exactly about being together with the people you can't escape. And then in, in another way, you haven't chosen. Right? You don't choose your family members and you don't get to choose your coworkers. Um, and so you have to figure out ways to get along with them, even though um, they're not necessarily the people you would have chosen to spend your time with. And there's also the fact that there's no closure, there's no ending. It's constant iteration because these are the people you have to go back to day after day and figure out a way to get along with. And so if we think about what are the virtues required for that kind of sociality, civility clearly, again, as a kind of baseline, but also we can think of forbearance and tolerance, forgiveness, which is absolutely crucial. A sense of humor, which is also absolutely crucial. An ability to laugh at one's own foibles and to recognize one's foibles and even admit to one's foibles, as well as to laugh at another's foibles. Now this leads into, and this is where I'll end, 
the fact that there are other forms of comedy. So Monty Python doesn't fit this, and we could talk about kind of Monty Python and the Marx Brothers type of comedy in the question and answer. It also doesn't address the fact that laughter runs the full spectrum. So laughter can be incredibly cruel. And if we think about satire and sarcasm, laughter has forms that are in fact uh, fairly close to the kind of violence that pushes people away that doesn't include them. But laughter of course can also be all the way at the other end of the spectrum be inclusive. So, you know, to take the examples, if you think about the office, uh, the jokes in the office uh, are often cruel and the practical jokes they play on some of their uh, compatriots in the office are cruel in a way that uh, you don't get in Parks and Rec where the, the humor is a lot more gentle in Parks and Rec where the eccentricities of your fellow workers are, if, you know, if not quite a source of joy, they are a source of amusement and don't seem dangerous. The other issue, of course, with comedy is that it's always claimed that comedy and why maybe the New York Times called it nice TV does not have a developed enough sense of evil. So what do you do about an evil that would disrupt, come in and disrupt the community? And I would say just to end here that the fourth box, if we think about redemptive violence, redemptive nonviolence, non-redemptive nonviolence, the fourth alternative in that kind of schema would be non-redemptive violence. And I think that a lot of the so-called serious art, serious literature of the 20th century has been very focused on non-redemptive violence. The experience of the 20th century with its horrendous wars and its heightened sense of the injustice of the inequalities inflicted on various populations, minorities of various kinds, has led to a real need within serious literature to continually remind us about the violence being done by humans to other humans, the ongoing injustice of inequalities and exclusions. And that, that story about a violence that doesn't get us anywhere, that's utterly futile, um, has in some sense dominated the literary imagination at a time when the comic modes have migrated over to popular forms like film and television. So I will stop there and I look forward to getting the plurality of views that will come from the questions. Well, thank you so much for that really um, rich and thought-provoking talk, especially in a moment like we're in now, as you mentioned, where we appear to be in a, a crisis of liberal democracy. Um, but it, I was thinking a lot about what you said um, in terms of if there's always kind of a majority rule or there's always one group of people who are kind of constantly winning the elections, then that group that doesn't win sort of sees no point necessarily in being a part of this liberal democracy. But I wonder if, do you think that is what is happening right now in the United States in terms of the um, protests that we had all summer long, the um, protests that we had here and the, and the the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville or the insurrection, like is this what's happening, but just on a sort of highly splintered scale? Sort of what is, who's the ruling class, the dominant class, and who are the people who feel like they're not getting a say? Well, I think what's odd about the current situation is that everyone feels like they're not getting a say. So, and I think, I don't think this is actually totally inaccurate. I think we have developed a federal government that at this point is very, very unresponsive to the public. And so it's insulated from the public for a variety of reasons, including you know, safe congressional districts, but also from the fact that you, know, you basically have to be a millionaire to run for office because of the high cost of elections. So what you have is agreement on all sides. And you know, when you look back to the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, what Martin Luther King had to mobilize and other activists were, you might say, extra constitutional modes of democratic participation. They were blocked from voting. Uh, they were blocked from the normal ability to be at the table uh, during negotiations. They were, the blacks in America were so excluded 
that they had to develop strategies to force themselves into the conversation. So that's why they had to take to the streets. And I think in the current moment, I think the insulation of the government from action, I mean, you know, look at the last four years. Even when the Republicans had control of all three, the two houses of Congress and the presidency, they basically only passed one bill. They passed the tax cut. The Congress hasn't passed a budget in something like 15 years. I mean, we have a, a political system that's in utter gridrock. We have one party that has no agenda at all. It didn't have a platform. It had no policies it was advocating for in the most current election. Uh, so no wonder people are frustrated and saying, there's all kinds of problems in our society and a government that's not even talking about those problems, no less trying to do anything about them. So I think that's where I would see the, uh, the anger on all sides coming from and the sense that voting isn't enough. I need to do something else to move the needle towards political action. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about the ways that people sort of make themselves heard, but also um, in that nonviolent mode as well. But I was thinking when you were talking about comedy, that the examples you gave were kind of like sitcoms and that are just sort of, I mean, I think that in some of them, there is an undercurrent, you know, there's sort of a, there's a little criticism going on there, but I was thinking more of the stand-up comedians and also like when The Daily Show was still hosted by Jon Stewart was kind of in its heyday, that it seemed to me that comedy was trying to do something that wasn't necessarily about a comic working out their own kind of like inner demons on the stage or something, but was actually about, like took on this different function. And I wonder if you had a, com a comment about that. I was also thinking about the Borat films, that the yeah, yeah. that seems to be completely different from maybe other forms that we've seen, or maybe not. No, that's really interesting. I, I think I, I would say two things about that. The first is that obviously when I've been thinking about comedy, I've been thinking about plot-driven comedy because I'm interested in narratives of transformation, so narratives of change. And you know, there's a long argument in the literary tradition that comedies are precisely about change, whereas tragedies are about intransience. Uh, tragedies are about refusals to change whereas comedy is about societies that change in order to accommodate the desires of the younger generation. So when you get to Jon Stewart, you're not in a narrative form. Um, you're in closer to clearly what's a satirical form. And I think in that case, laughter is being used to, in one sense, try to laugh these people off the stage. So saying laughter is in fact a more effective mobilization of whatever it would be, anger or discontent. Um, it's also obviously uh, astoundingly effective in terms of winning audiences. So, you know, I don't want to guess, but you know, 70% of my students got the news from Jon Stewart. That was their source. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a double-edged sword when you take, when you develop that kind of rhetoric of humiliation because there is a story which seems to have some plausibility to it that Trump decided to run for president because President Obama mocked him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So that humiliation is, you know, I guess you'd say humiliation is a deep rooted hurt uh, that does generate then various kinds of resentment, fantasies of revenge, uh, violence, et cetera. So laughter uh, is dangerous in that respect. This sort of question of civility as well, um, because I feel like some of the plot-driven, narrative-driven comedies are like straddling that line of civility and like Borat, for example, but and, and South Park, which all of our students also know and like got a lot of their sort of criticisms of, you know, various things in U.S. society from, from watching um, these programs that were enormously popular and came onto the scene at a time when I do think they were filling some kind of void that people felt like they were not getting from the news as things turned more toward entertainment. Um, but I wonder what you think about the idea of 
civility in terms of like, is, is civility necessary for the stability of liberal democracy or is it actually the way that the sort of ruling classes like keep themselves in power by saying, we're guarding against the unruly, the unwashed or whatever, the uncivilized, the people who are not being civil um, and they need us to put them in order. Yeah, so um, I was uh, on the committee at the University of North Carolina that had to uh, generate a free speech, a appropriate speech policy for campus. And I walked into those meetings. This is a perfect example of being in a committee and learning your own limitations. I walked into those into that committee with my notions about civility and as a baseline, and we could identify the baseline of you know listening respectfully to others, et cetera. And I was quickly told uh, by, you know, put it bluntly, by people who were not, I mean, not, weren't men, weren't tenured, you know, weren't distinguished professors. They said, no, 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 you don't understand. That civility card is played on us all the time to shut us up. And that we need to be able to express anger. We need to be able to interrupt people who are talking over us as they do all the time. We need to shout to be heard because we say things and it's as if we never said them because there's no response to them. So that one, you know, that was a tough one for me because I, you know, I want to say, well, I, I don't do so well when people shout at me. I don't know how that gets us down the road, but I can also understand if you've had that experience where, you know, people say, you know, be polite and that's seen as censorship. I can't hear you if you are speaking in this way, right? So like, it doesn't, it's not a way to say that you're not right, but that you're not, you know, using the right tone or something. Um, uh, and also, over here. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, just I as you will. I have a corner of my eye, there's a ton of questions. So after you sort of comment on no, that. Oh, go I'll ahead. The... Okay. Um, uh, they are, they've been kind of scrolling down here. I'm like, I forgot I have to look over here. So um, we have a question from someone who says, what factors are principally responsible for undermining liberal democracy US and across the world today? And what role does the internet play and government hackers and bots from hostile foreign nations? Yeah, so I, you know, I don't, I don't wanna be a complete paranoid about the internet and about, uh, media, but I do believe, and I, I've written about this at some length, in fact, that there was a shift, a radical shift in the middle 90s. And that radical shift can be tied to Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich, who went out and explicitly said, this is a civil war, it's just a civil war at the ballot box, by a uh, you know, a right wing that basically never accepted the legitimacy of the Clinton presidency. And from the beginning wanted to take Clinton down with all these various fake scandals. You know, again, you have to be as old as I am to remember Vince Foster and, you know, the travel office in the White House. And I mean, all these just ridiculous and unending investigations. Um, and, you know, 1995 is the beginning of Fox News. And so the problem is, that there are deep incentives, it has turned out, for the Republican Party, um, and to some extent for the Democrats, we can talk about that, but there is deep incentives for the Republican Party to have adopted a divisive politics, where in fact what you do is demonize your opponents and activate your base. And you know this goes back to Nixon in 1968. Lyndon Johnson, when he signed the Civil Rights Bill said, I've lost the South for the Democratic Party for a generation. It turned out he was wildly optimistic. Every Republican candidate since Nixon in 68 has gotten over 55% of the white vote in America. Uh, Trump in this last election got 57% and that was actually down a little bit from what he got in 2016. So the Republican Party has doubled down on the notion that the Democrats are a threat to America. You know, they're socialists, they believe in, you know, diversity and, you know, multiculturalism, and they're going to get rid of our, you know, Protestant, give us Sharia law, all the rest of it. And 
So on the right, there has been an absolute refusal, which culminated on January 6th in accepting the legitimacy of their left, center left opponents in the Democratic Party. They do not accept them as a legitimate loyal opposition. It is a disaster to this nation when the Democrats hold power. Um, and you cannot have a liberal democracy if you refuse for peaceful transitions of power. Yeah, and I, mean, I mean, you know, back to the question of civility also within that frame that I can hardly think of a more uncivil place than the sort of the internet and social media in terms of the, the way that um, I think to a certain extent, Facebook and Twitter started to plant what Fox News had been doing in terms of allowing different forms of information, you know, that were, you know, had a, the barest relationship to the truth to kind of proliferate. And so I was also thinking with this question about the internet and hackers, just as another group, like that sort of GameStop scandal that we all heard so much about a couple of weeks ago, um, that th this is yet another group that is kind of like, are they the bandits? Or are they the heroes, right? To bring down the stock market to this point, for this stock and for these these kind of swapping and shorting and all of these things that we've had to become familiar with since the housing crisis. Um, and I just wonder sort of that splintering you talked about, it seems to be potentially endless when we're dealing with kind of media culture and digital culture as well. Yeah, no, I mean, the Hannah Arendt in one of her articles says, we can argue till the cows come home what the causes of World War I are. But if you tell me Belgium invaded Germany in 1914, end of conversation. We've got no place to go at that point. And unfortunately, in lots of our current civic discourse, we seem to have reached that point. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, it's, our contemporary political scene is filled with arguments we can't have because we, the, the basic facts are not acknowledged as facts. Um, Let's see here. I think we have a few more here. Um, oh, one about the comedy. So this should be good. What What are the requirements needed to establish a comic mode in our discourse? Do we need to establish a dominant point of view? And if that is the case, what are the obligations of media, academia, and others um, within that? Yeah, I, I would love to say the answer to that is no, we don't need a dominant mode. So I'm, I'm very moved by the work of uh, the Caribbean British author, Paul Gilroy, where Gilroy is interested in something he calls conviviality culture. And it comes to him from his deep involvement in the music scene. And again, I'm gonna show my age here, but uh, the two cities I know most, I grew up in New York City and went to college in Washington DC and I've spent a lot of time in both of those cities over the past 50 plus years. Uh, street, the street vibe in both of those cities is immensely, immensely better now than it was in the 1970s. In fact, what I'm amazed about is how well American civic life, you know, on the, in, the, in the cities, in the neighborhoods, in those public spaces, how, how well it functions compared to what seemed to be its terminal decline in the 1970s. You know, and this isn't to say, you know, gentrification isn't a problem, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in everyday life, um, in all kinds of se settings, we are demonstrating we know how to live together. Um, and we do live together and, you know, rub elbows in workplaces and in, you know, various civic scenes. You know, I, I mean, I guess I want to just say, go to Jackson Heights in Queens uh, and walk the streets in Jackson Heights. And that's a vision of an America that I hope is, I mean, is here in Jackson Heights already. I hope it's more of the future for all of us. Um, and it's a place where, you know, the mingling of different religions, different ethnic groups, different languages, does not seem to be generating hostility, but instead this kind of way of learning how to live together. Uh, so I didn't mention Modern Family is one of my favorite comedies along this line. So Modern Family is precisely about thinking about this kind of intermingling of different peoples. Yeah, 
um, I, I was thinking about how um, the comedies that you mentioned are kind of, especially those more recent comedies about bringing people together, community, uh, parks and recreations and taking pe people who really aren't that similar, like in an office and they have to kind of work together. And then um, of course in Modern Family, the whole thing is about that the Modern Family does not look as homogeneous as um, the Modern Family of the 1950s, for example. Um, but it seems to me that on the other side of that, we also have a, a kind of news culture that loves the differences and loves the conflicts. And so it seems to me that there's actually different forces at work. And, and this brings me to somebody's question here, which I think might be very interesting, but which is about Donald Trump and says, you know, was Donald Trump a comedian? And how do his performances look when analyzed uh, through your models? Because I think that, um, it, we could say that the that the real comedians maybe are the newscasters and what they're doing in terms of amplifying stories that are not real also, right? And conflicts that are, they're blowing out of proportion in certain senses. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I mean, obviously I have to say he's not a comedian because then my whole thing is thrown, blown out of the water. But I, I think the, the reason I would say he's not a comedian um, is precisely the, the uh, lack of laughter. So, you know, Trump was driven clearly by anger, is driven by anger and a sense of humiliation of not being, you know, respected by the people he wants to be respected by, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's so weird, the kind of parading of his insecurities in public um, at, as he's trying to say, I'm the greatest, you know, so it, the, the conflict there. But the, the anger point is important because, you know, think of someone like Richard Pryor, if we go back to um, stand-up comedians. Uh, you know, Pryor, that wasn't as if Pryor wasn't angry uh, and wasn't a hard-hitting commentator on racial relations in the United States. But he always had that ability to laugh at himself and to find, as you might, you know, a, even if it's a black humor, a humor that brings the audience in with him to you know, acknowledge together through the laughter, the things that he's pointing out about our society. So that the, the laughter there is to, uh, you know, again, it's a rhetorical device to bring the audience into your point of view. But Trump wasn't about that. Trump was about playing to his base and to then, you know, pushing away and demonizing everyone who is then shown as a threat to his base. Uh, so I, I just don't think I, that that fits with a kind of comic spirit. Um, you know, I work with a lot of French texts and French people colloquially say, you know, quel comédien, but it, it doesn't mean the person's actually funny. You know, it's actually more about like faking, being a faker, uh, being sort of a like a jokester, but like not in a, not in a funny haha way. So it's interesting to me to think about, and there's, you know, that famous Graham Greene book, The Comedians, which is not actually about Haiti being actually a super funny place at that moment in time. But so it is, there is a sort of farcical aspect to certain elements of, of contemporary political life and perhaps other moments in our political life as well. But but I, th I take your point that the line between comedy, satire, farce, I mean, it's these are fine grain sorts of distinctions, I guess we might say. Um, so Robert Newman has a question. He says, is there a pragmatic reading of situation comedy? And what would Dewey think of the office of, I always love thought experiments, or is pragmatism all too serious? No, so, um... No, in fact, I, I tried to dig out a few places in Dewey where I think that uh, he, he would be open to comedy. Um, it is true that Dewey is about the driest read you can ever imagine. He, I always say to my students, please, please work your way through this because he's right 80% of the time, but it's not a pleasure to read him as opposed to William James, the other famous pragmatist who's a total joy to read. You know, I didn't mention this, but I'm glad Robert brings up this point. When Dewey thinks about democracy as a mode of associated life, one of Dewey's biggest themes was workplace democracy. So Dewey thought 
that if we wanted to have the experience of the full participation among equals when we're committed to a common task and get the joys of that kind of meaningful participation and the sense of achieving something that can't be done by individual effort that requires cooperation, the workplace would be a, a key place to experience that. And so throughout his career, he hated the fact of hierarchical workplaces. He hated the kind of command structure that is in the workplace. He thought you would get absolutely better results. You would have more buy-in from your workers. You would have better results because they're on the ground and know what would be the most efficient and best ways to do things that you're trying to do. Uh, so he, he found it a disaster that um, there, there wasn't workplace democracy. And so I think, you know, his response to a place like the office would be to try to think about the ways that its hierarchical uh, structures prevented the kind of, you know, ideal image he had of association um, between fellow citizens and here fellow employees. More questions piling up here, so let me see. Um... So we have a question about social media. I might try to fold some of them in here together. Um, has social media fostered polarization and scapegoating that undermines democracy? Humor is also destroyed by the mocking of the other on social media and empathy breaks down. So that's a, that's a sort of a different way to ask. You know, there is the laughing at part of, of comedy yeah. as well, rather than the laughing with, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, Hobbes, as we might expect within the tradition, uh, is the philosopher who says laughter is always about establishing your superiority to others. So uh, within the tradition, there is the thought that laughter of that kind of cruel or hierarchical reinforcing laughter. Um, you know, the, the social media thing is, is, is definitely a problem. I, I think I want to say Fox is worse because it's much, it's more broadcast and it also comes with a semblance of a certain kind of authority, you know, fair and balanced and all the rest of it. But I also do want to think about the, the perverse incentives that we've created in our political system for polarization. So again, you know, the Republican Party has doubled down on this and they've doubled down on it by gerrymandering by the issue, and because you're gerrymandered, uh, then you're susceptible to primary challenges. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like you can go too far right in the Republican Party to gain nomination uh, because of these gerrymandered districts. And then the other crucial thing is the money. I mean, so that because you have to raise so much money to run a political campaign, uh, that leads to this need to demonization. Um, and to you know, rile up your base so that they open their pocketbooks. Uh, so the, the Republicans at least seem to have decided that creating polarization is the, you know, a winning strategy for them. Now, of course, then they've mobilized not just Fox, but also social media. And we know that the social media gets flooded, right, with what looks like you know, coming from private citizens, but in fact is coming from various political action committees, et cetera. And then those things go viral, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that information flows currently in the society certainly exacerbates the problem. Um, I'm gonna take the host's privilege and ask the final question. Um, the electoral college, a challenge to liberal democracy or its sort of foundations in the United States? So, you know, David Frum has an article that I'll recommend to all of you. And Frum, you know, is a conservative who's now seemed to have become uh, disillusioned with what's happened to the conservative movement. He was a speechwriter for George W. Bush, uh, has an article in the recent Atlantic talking about these institutional problems, the electoral college, the Senate that doesn't represent majorities, et cetera. I, I'm not against institutional change, I think, we probably need institutional change in various forms. But I also, this goes with my non-resolution idea that you're not gonna resolve conflicts. I don't think there are quick fixes. 
I, I think that whatever system you have, people will learn how to game that system or try to use that system to their ends. And I think what the past four years especially have shown to us is almost more important than the institutional fixtures are the norms. And that when you have a violation of the norms, then whatever system you have in place is gonna prove inadequate. And that's where I get back to this lack of accountability that the, the Republicans had paid no price at all. I mean, that was the lesson I took away from the 2020 election. Yes, the Trump lost, but the Republican party and Republican party candidates paid no price for having enabled Trump for four years. In terms of the congressional and the Senate races, they were not held accountable. And they're not gonna change their norm defying behavior, their use of the filibuster, their you know, blocking of federal judge appointments, all the rest of it, um, until they're made to pay a price for that at the ballot box. And so, you know, that seems to be more central than institutional reforms that frankly, given the amendment, you know, the amendment process of the American constitution, I know the electoral college is not going away during my lifetime. And, you know, I hope it goes away during yours. <laughs> well, that is a fitting way to allow you to, um, to, to, to conclude. And thank you so much for this very lively discussion. I really enjoyed this. Um, and I hope uh, everyone out there on the internet uh, watching on the YouTube live feed enjoyed this as well. You may also visit nationalhumanitycenter.org to learn more about the National Humanities Center. Um, good evening, everyone, and please stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.